This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Does Genesis function merely as the beginning of the Bible's larger story, or can Genesis be read as its own book? Does Genesis have its own plot that moves from complication to denouement? Todd L. Patterson, in his recent book, The Plot Structure of Genesis, says yes. Book of Genesis, Patterson argues, turns on the question, will the righteous seed survive? Tune in as we talk with Todd Patterson about the plot of Genesis. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Todd L. Patterson earned his Ph.D. in 2012 from Trinity International University, and he is Assistant Professor of Old Testament at Matej Bell University in Slovakia. He is also a co-chairman of the Pentateuch Research Group at the annual meeting of the Institute for Biblical Research. Todd, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thank you very much. It's great to be talking with you. Todd, why don't we begin by having you explain for our listeners your plot structure approach to Genesis? Mm-hmm, sure. So, um, you know, I, I use the word plot structure instead of plot because I kind of want to signal to the reader that whereas plot can have a range of meanings for people, plot structure, by plot structure, I mean something pretty specific. And, and that means that I, I follow. Uh, Aristotle pretty closely on that. And for Aristotle, a plot structure means that uh, that when you have uh, a series of, it means that the organizing principle of a narrative is plot structure or the movement from tension to denouement or, or to resolution. And so if you can have different kinds of organizing principles for for a narrative. You can have a narrative that's organized by chronology or or a narrative that's organized by uh, cause and effect. But in in plot structure, that organizing principle is movement from attention to resolution. And there are different ways to analyze a plot structure. So there's the Bramasian or Propian actantial analysis, where they where they say that there are, you know, the six different actants that you can break down a narrative or an action into into that, and, and, and you can use that to get to the heart of what this narrative or action is about. But I I um you know, recur thinks of those kinds of analyses as being. Uh, too par- paradigmatic, you know. They it's like a grammar in a, in a sentence. You have 
nouns and verbs and adjectives. And so you have these actants in this actantial analysis. And for Kerr, he thinks that those are those are good, but uh, they they don't they kind of miss out a little bit or underemphasize the more syntagmatic one thing leading to another that is essential in this movement from tension to resolution. So instead of doing this analysis of this, this, this kind of actantial analysis, I simplify it a little bit and just look at it in terms of uh, the key being identifying the tension that sets the, the plot or plot structure and movement at the beginning of the narrative and then following that through to the end. And uh, and then that um, I think there's something helpful about that in that uh, it keeps you know the way that I follow a plot it is uh, is related very closely to my definition of plot, and that then leads me it helps me to develop a kind of control over the way that I read. So I, I had two control questions that I was asking myself as I'm following the plot to make sure that that this that this plot structure that I see there really is fair in the text and not not something that I see that that uh, uh, is made up. And and that first question is so if, if in a plot structure if uh, if the organizing principle is movement from tension to resolution then all of the different episodes that make up the narrative as a whole, that there there shouldn't be any episodes that stick out there as not belonging to that that single movement or a single action. Aristotle put a lot of emphasis on on plot structure as a single action, and and, and uh, I'm not saying it's the only way to to do plot structure, but I, I wanted to look at Genesis and see if that works out in this book, and, and then we did. So, in other words, so for that first control question, if <clears throat> if uh, if you have competing proposals for plot structure, the better proposal is the one that makes more sense of all the various episodes. So that was my first uh, control question. The next control question was, well, you know, we, there's already a lot of stuff we know about Genesis. We've got things like the Toledot structure or the Toledot headings that 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 divide the book. There's, you know, for as an example, that's one thing. Or you have characteristics of the book, like you have know, the repetition of wife sister stories, or the preference for the non-primogeniture for the, the not firstborn son. So the if you have these characteristics that everybody recognizes, and if you suggest a plot structure, it shouldn't go against, shouldn't work against the Toledo headings and the way that they organize the book. It should work together with them. And conversely, if or not exactly conversely, but maybe as a corollary of that, if there are sections of the book that we don't exactly know how to place or know how they fit in, if a plot, if a suggested plot structure helps make sense of that, then that also is a good way of knowing that, hey, this seems to be a good proposal for for the plot structure of the book. So 
that basically that was my approach in terms of class structure and what it is and, and how I used it also as as a control for have I have I done this correctly? Does it work out okay? Since Genesis is the first book of the Bible, understanding its plot is crucial for the rest of the Bible's story. What do you see as the plot complication for the Bible story, and then for the book of Genesis in particular? Right, right. Yeah, so this is, a, this is something I dealt with as I was writing uh, or putting this together. You know, how do I deal with the plot structure of Scripture? I mean, I can't. I'm not writing about that. And yet it's also there. I think it's also there at the beginning of Genesis. So, uh, but I think, so the plot structure of scripture, I think is fairly, you know, widely recognized and, and not that complicated. So that, that helped, that helped me out a little bit there. Uh, so in that case, I look at Genesis 1 and 3, I, I see the, the temple or sanctuary imagery. In the early chapters, so that so that creation is is as a temple is this place that God has created as a dwelling place where, where He dwells, but it's it's a dwelling place for humanity. So so humans were created to live in the presence of, of God, which has obviously huge theological implications. But but then in chapter two. Uh, uh, man and women are given this special task as created in the image of God to uphold the creation order. And then when they don't do that, in Genesis 3, they're removed from this uh, creation sanctuary, out of the presence of God. And, and that obviously raises the tension for all of Scripture. And I think you could follow that through and see how that, and people have done that, naturally. And see how that works in scripture. So thankfully, people had done that, and I didn't have to argue for that. Um, but um, so that tension drives all of scripture, but not the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis does something else. And um, another key thing to the leading up to the plot structure of Genesis itself is that in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, you know the, the uh, Evangelium. Um, you know, this is somewhat controversial in terms of is this uh, when God curses the serpent, and when He says, that, "You know, I'll place enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed." Um, you know, is that is that pointing forward to an ultimate victory over 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 the serpent and? And people are doubtful about that. But I think that I, I draw on um, Richard Averbeck on that. And he says that, that, you know, if you're reading this from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, then it's pretty natural to think that this talking snake uh, can be associated with, you know, this um, arch enemy of God and, and uh, the uh, creation conflict kind of theme. Where now it's not the same because this is just this this serpent is part of God's creation, and and uh, so there's no there's no struggle with God to create, but there is struggle between uh, between humanity and the serpent, and and that brings a kind of chaos back into creation. 
And that statement then about the struggle in Genesis 3.15 would indicate that through the victory over the serpent, it doesn't say there will be victory, but it, it indicates that we should look, if we want to see the tension of scripture resolved, then we should look for it through the seed of the woman uh, and, and its defeat of the serpent. And so now this, this is where the plot structure and the following, the movement from tension to resolution in the book of Genesis, I think uh, has a lot of uh, potential because now when you start out Genesis chapter four, so now, now we'll get to the, the, the tension that drives Genesis. We start chapter four, the Cain-Abel narrative. And if we're reading for plot, you know, if we're following the attention of scripture, we're going to be looking, we're going to be following carefully the seed of the woman. And, you know, sure enough, that's how Genesis 4 starts out. Uh, first Cain is born and then Abel is born. And, and so naturally, I think we should be asking the question, so is this the seed through whom we return to God's, God's presence? And, uh, and you know, when you read Genesis chapter 4, it turns out, no. And, well, why not? Well, no, because uh, Cain's not the seed, because he doesn't master sin. You know, God, that's what, basically the challenge that God gives him, look, you know, sin is crouching at your door, uh, uh, and his desire is for you, but you, you must master it. And he doesn't master it. And so... Uh, he then is uh, driven even further from God's presence than than Adam and Eve. So, and that's where I look at. I look in the in the book. You know, I, I look at chapter three and chapter four and compare them, and you can see that the chapter four follows this same pattern. There are lots of parallels, but there are also differences. And the differences point to the fact that Cain. We, we might be expecting him. If we're expecting him to be the one to lead us back to God's presence, he's not because he does all the same things that Adam and Eve did, only worse. And the, and the contrast point to that, this idea that he's driven even further. His, and so it's just the opposite of what we would be hoping for. So Cain is not the seed because he's not righteous or he doesn't master sin. And Abel is not the seed. Because he doesn't survive. And so this is the tension, the big question for the book of Genesis. If we're looking for this seed that is going to take us back to God's creation presence, all, all of a sudden, uh, you know, how's that going to happen? This, the seed is going to have to be righteous and it's going to have to survive. Is it going to do that? How's that, how's that going to work out? And so, so that's it. Will the seed be righteous and will it survive? So that's my subtitle. Will the righteous seed survive in the mythological reading of Genesis? So how would the Abraham narrative fit into this plot structure? Yeah, Abraham is pretty key, but we did skip over Noah. <laughs> and so in plot structure, you have to get all the things fit together, so you have to get Noah first or Abraham first. So um, so Noah kind of just quickly to get to Abraham, Noah reinforces this idea that 
Righteousness is important, obviously. And also, um, that actually, just to go back to Genesis 4 for a second, some of the key motifs for all of the book of Genesis are there in, in Genesis 4. Like, for example, that not all of the seed is in the line of promise, or that uh, you know the unrighteousness of the seed threatens the survival of the seed, and the righteousness of the seed uh, can lead to the preservation of the seed, and you know non-preference for primogeniture, and uh, and so on and so forth. So, so all those things are there, and those same themes then get picked up by the Noah narrative and lead us into the Abraham narrative. So basically, just to say that. Uh, the, the, the no narrative reinforces all of those so that by the time we get to the Abraham narrative, we have a pretty solid expectation that, yeah, righteousness is important. And the unrighteousness of the seed threatens the survival of the seed, like it did in the, in the flood narrative and like it did in We can see those same things happening then in, in, in Abraham. So you can see that righteousness is important. Um, righteousness comes out in chapter 15 where uh, Abraham believes God and God counted uh, towards him as righteousness or you can see it in the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative uh, and that I think is a very interesting narrative I think Lot in the, in the whole Abraham narrative Lot serves as a foil uh, this is what the seed should not be and that comes out real clearly in Genesis 18 and 19 with the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative because you know, here you have the situation almost like the flood where there's evil and God's going to bring, you know, he's going to absolutely destroy it. <clears throat> but Abraham pleads with God, kind of barters with God. Uh, you know, if there are, if there's basically, if there's enough righteousness, uh, so, so the unrighteousness of, of humanity is threatening its survival again. But Abraham's saying, well, well, if there's enough righteousness, will you preserve the city? And it comes down to really the question, is Lot and his house righteous enough to save Sodom and Gomorrah? And, um, and in the end, he's not. He's not really even righteous enough to save all of his own family. And in the end, it, I think the text makes this ironic point that he's, he's only righteous enough to save a little, or Zoar, a little. And, and even that is all really because of Abraham interceding. So there's, you have this, Abraham is righteous theme. It, it comes out. But you also have this theme in the Abraham narrative that Abraham is not so righteous. And it runs, uh, it's woven through these same narratives, and it comes out especially in the wife sister stories, so that um, so that Abraham in chapter twelve when he goes to Egypt and says Sarah's my sister or Sarai and at that point, um, so I, I make a case in the book that it actually brings some doubt, some serious doubt onto Abraham. But even if you uh, allow that, the text is maybe not so clear on whether or not uh, it's judging Abraham for this or not. I think it's still, it's raising doubts in readers' mind about Abraham's righteousness. 
And then when you get to chapter 20, I think uh, when he goes to Gerar and passes Sarah off as his sister to Abimelech, that's a different situation because in chapter 18, and really just the narrative just before 18, 18 19, uh, God told Abraham that, uh, that he, well, in 17, he said that his offspring would come through Sarah. And then in 18, he said, in a year from now, I'll visit you and the son will be born. And before that happens, he's passing off Sarah to, to Abimelech as his sister. He's taking her as his wife. And this is, this is the unrighteousness of the seed threatening the survival of the seed in the Abraham narrative. And this produces this idea uh, that hate is, is he righteous or not? And, and so you get to Genesis 22 and, and the need for God to test Abraham. And, and so, the, so God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And, and to me, it's kind of a genius move by, by the author, by Moses, to to set this up because, because the, the survival of the seed is at risk if Abraham obeys God and sacrifices Isaac. This is the son that God promised to him, and now he's asking him to sacrifice it and to put an end to this line of promise. So if Abraham is righteous and obeys God, he puts an end to the line. But if he doesn't sacrifice Isaac, then he is disobeying God. But we know from the logic of the narrative that if he disobeys God, he's unrighteous, and he puts the survival of the seed at risk. So it's a no-win situation for Abraham that in the end, God intervenes, brings it all around, and, and says, now I know that, that you fear me. Which was the question in the, I think in the Genesis 20 account with, with, uh, with uh, Abimelech and Gerar, they feared God, but Abraham we're not so sure about. And and now in 22, Abraham shows himself uh, to fear the Lord. So so that's how that would be an example of how um, the narrative has been developing right along these lines of will the seed be righteous and will it survive? It, it builds up this tension. Um, you know, is the seed righteous? And then you have the test. And and Abraham, in this case, proves himself and and the narrative can move on from there. Reading Genesis as a book, how does the Joseph and Judah narrative accomplish a denouement? Feel free, of course, to touch on the Jacob cycle. Yeah, you're right. I have to touch on Jacob because Jacob is kind of a key part. Uh, he brings he brings out the real tension in the in the story of Genesis because you know after Noah and after Abraham, we have this expectation, or or it's it's been confirmed for us now two times that that the righteousness of the seed is important. The unrighteousness of the seed threatens the survival of the seed. 
And I, I argue in the Jacob narrative, I didn't think this at, at first. I was going for this idea that Jacob turns out righteous. You know, the struggle, uh, the, the wrestling with God is, is the scene where he turns the corner, according to a lot of theologians. And I was going in that direction, but I just couldn't get that to make sense. I didn't think that was right. And I was I was stuck. I thought, okay, this is not gonna this is the whole thing's gonna fall apart. Um and I'll have to do something else. But um I think in the end, uh it works better, it fits together better when you let the text do what it does, which I think is it leaves it raises that issue. So here's Jacob who righteous or not righteous, it's not really clear. It almost seems to be saying that he's got all these opportunities uh, to call on the Lord, for example, but, but never really does until God tells him to. And, and then finally does, but first he has to get rid of the idols from his house. So it never looks really good for Jacob. And you get to the end of the Jacob narrative and you're, and the whole plot structure is at risk because so the seed is supposed to be righteous if it's going to survive, if God is going to carry on with this line of, of promise. But at the end of the Jacob narrative, we don't know, is he, is he righteous or not? It seems like he's not. And yet, we do know that God is carrying on with this line. And so that what's going to happen from here? Is the seed righteous? Is the seed not righteous? If the seed is not righteous, does it no longer matter? Or is God going to do something? So those are the questions, those are the important questions that we have as we're starting the Joseph narrative. And you know, is is the sea righteous or not? And, and does it matter? Is God going to do anything about it if it's not? And Genesis 37 right away answers that question, is the seed righteous, with a big no. Because in Genesis 37, of course, uh, Joseph's brothers first plot kill, are jealous of him because uh, Jacob favors him over the others. And then they start plotting to kill him. Now, this looks a lot like Cain and Abel. Uh, so this is, you know, Cain and Abel all over again, which, which also leads to a kind of climax or movement towards climax in, in the book of Genesis. In the end, they don't kill him. They sell him into slavery. But by selling him into slavery, they have uh, threatened what we all know is, everyone who's ever read it knows is, you know, two tribes of, of Israel. And so it's not all Israel anymore. And so the unrighteousness of the seed has threatened the survival of the seed in that way. And, uh, and we have this big no to know the seed is not righteous. The seed actually is just like Cain. So that's 37. And then you get to 38, which is kind of enigmatic. How does this fit in here? But Genesis 38 answers the second question. Uh, does it matter? Because now Judah goes down from his brothers, marries a Canaanite woman, 
these are things that don't look good in in the Genesis narrative. And and then you know he has three sons, one, two, three. The first son, Er, does evil in the eyes of Lord, and and now uh, he acts and he puts Er to death. And uh, and then uh, along comes Onan, right? So he has this chance to take over uh, from his brother to take uh, Tamar as his wife, have uh, a child with her that would that would preserve the line of heir. Uh, but Onan does the calculations and figures out that that would be. Uh, I would get a much better financial deal out of this if I remain as the as the oldest son. You know, I get the double portion. And if I don't take Tamar, and then my younger brother he'll he'll do it, and then I'll still miss out. So he keeps her as his wife, um, but he keeps his seed from her. So he. He now is doing evil. He's acting unrighteously. And his unrighteousness is also threatening the preservation of the line, of Er's line, and of the wholeness of Israel. And so he's done evil, and the Lord puts him to death. So now Judah steps in. He sees, doesn't see what's happening. Um, but sees a threat, and he's afraid to give his youngest son to, to Tamar. So he does exactly the same thing that Onan did. He keeps his seed from Tamar. And now this is a big deal because God killed Er because he did what was evil. God killed Onan because he did what was evil. Now Judah's done exactly the same thing. Now it's going to happen. Well, that works out better for. Judah, uh, because when Tamar shows up that, you know, I'm pregnant by, I'm sure I'm in the story, I'm pregnant by the guy that, that owns these, and he says, he says then, she's righteous, not I, or she's more righteous than I. So he has recognized his unrighteousness. And then uh, she has two sons to take the place of the two that are missing. And to me, Tamar is the the great hero in this story, and maybe in all of Genesis, because she's the one that, that against all odds, uh, steps in, does the righteous thing, and preserves the seed, but not just Judah's seed. She turns the whole Genesis narrative around. Because now, you know, the brothers go down to Egypt, and, uh, and Joseph creates this situation where they have an opportunity to do to Benjamin exactly what they did to Joseph. That is, send him into slavery in Egypt. But this time, instead of like in Joseph's case, they they were, it was, you know, they were completely guilty. But this time they could do it and feel innocent because, you know, after all, they found the cup in, in Benjamin's sack. And so what can we do about it? Uh, it's this perfect situation to get rid of this other brother that is also the favored brother, uh, favored by his father and by Joseph, and, and 
and get off with it scot-free and not have to even feel guilty about it. But, uh, but that's where Judas steps in and demonstrates his change of character and demonstrates in the end that the seed after all has, has, is righteous. And, and that saves the whole story. So um, that's not the end, though, of course, because um, you can kind of see a buildup through the book of Genesis. So Noah's righteous, but not quite at the end of the narrative. Abraham's righteous, not righteous. And then, yeah, he pulls it through. Um, Jacob, we don't know, but then his brother Judah pulls the whole, th- whole thing through. And you kind of wonder, is how long can, can we keep this up? And uh, so that's where the brothers coming to Joseph at the end of Genesis um, brings us kind of, I think, a real resolution to the narrative where they come to Joseph and they say, and they say, you know, our father said, you should forgive us. You know, they're afraid of, of what Joseph will do after the father Jacob has died. And, and Joseph then says to them, uh, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it uh, for good in order to preserve the lives of all these people. And uh, and so, and, and the, the, it points to this idea, this, this conclusion, I think cl- the real climactic conclusion and the resolution, the denouement to the book of Genesis, points to this idea that that uh, the seed, yes, it does have to be righteous and it does have to survive in order to get us back to God's presence. But there's a big question about is the seed really able to do that? And the narrative ends with this idea that uh, that God is the one that's going to take care of that somehow. You don't know, you don't know how yet. But God's the one that's going to take care of that. So that's how that brings the whole book of Genesis to to a close. An intriguing and helpful look at Genesis. Before we let you go, Todd, would you tell us a little bit more about yourself and perhaps about any other projects you're currently working on? Sure. Yeah, I'm uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm from the United States. I'm from uh, the state of Illinois, where Wisconsin dairy farms they came to Illinois from the north. That's where I grew up. And uh, but uh, now I find myself as a missionary in Slovakia. So I teach at a seminary. I teach Old Testament at a seminary here in, in Slovakia. And I have I have a wife. Her name is Jana. She's Slovak. Uh, she's from Eastern Slovakia. I met her during my first three-year trip here, and we were married during that time, and we have two children. Uh, Elizabeth, my daughter, is uh, almost 17, and uh, we have a son, Max, who is 15, and uh, we're, we're enjoying uh, this life and in, in, in adventure in Slovakia. Um, and then we're involved, I'm involved in the seminary. Uh, for me personally, my um, I see my job not so much as to teach in a seminary. That's what I do, uh, 
but I, I see my job or my, my calling more as to help the church read and understand scripture better and, and bring that into everyday life. And so that's what uh, I love doing here in Salaki. So I don't just teach at the center. I also work with pastors or or teaching churches and, and various opportunities. And then uh, projects. Um, I was a, a couple of years ago as part of uh, the, uh, the creation project for um, evangelical theology and the doctrine of creation. Uh, it is, it's a, it's a Templeton, a Templeton religion fund, a supported project at the Henry Center for Theological Education, which is at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. <clears throat> um, and um, I'm actually completing still two articles uh, for that, which work on, are looking at this, the relationship between historiography and the biblical text as historiography and as uh, a literary work at the same time. How can this text uh, that, that I think clearly uh, is making claims about things that happen in history also be a literary text describing things uh, um, in, 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 for example, in, as in plot. So plot is, is the arrangement of events. The arrangement of events is not chronological, not cause and effect. It's a movement from tension to resolution, which is why the Judah narrative in Genesis 38 shows up right where it does. It's the perfect literary spot. It's not the perfect chronological spot. So how can a text like this be making truth claims and at the same time doing this in a way that is artistic or mimetic, as I would say? So that, that's a tricky question, and it is taking me into a philosophy of historiography and things like that. My ultimate goal is to work on, is to work on biblical theology. And if plot structure is the organizing principle for narrative, which is what I wanted to look at and see if that works out in Genesis. And for me, that's a now a proven concept that plot structure is the organizing principle of Genesis and I think also the organizing principle for scripture. <clears throat> so if plot structure is the organizing, organizing principle of narrative, to me it follows that Plot structure is the organizing principle for biblical theology. And I want to uh, work especially on that area. Um, and that leads, that's why it leads me through the historiography question and, and how things, just how scripture communicates more than just the contingencies of history, but also, in a sense, the, the universals or the the theological truths that come through in Scripture. That all sounds great. Thank you, Todd, for being with us today. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.